This episode is going to talk about drug abuse, drug overdose deaths, and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. One of the things I say is drugs today are stronger, cheaper, easier to get, and more socially acceptable. Education is caught between the 18th century notion of the three R's and the 21st century explosion of technology, politics, and the need to prepare our kids for the ever-evolving global economy. We know parents and educators all want the same outcome for kids, happy, healthy, and independent young people, but how do we get there and what are the obstacles and pitfalls we face along the way? Join us as we ask the question, what's What's best best for kids? kids? Hey Don, how you doing? (laughs) You know what I realized? You always start. I do. Yeah, because I hit the big red button that starts recording. And so. then you ask me how I am. Uh-huh. And then you always laugh. You <laughs> always think that's un- a funny question. It makes me uncomfortable. You're the first person today to ask me how I'm doing. Well, I hope I'm not the last person to ask you that. Well, we might be able to have another person because we have a special guest. We do have a very special guest, and we should get to it right away. Rocky, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Great, right, Don. So uh, today we've got Rocky Heron, former DEA agent, and now working with the county office, correct? That's correct. Not just a former DEA agent, a retired 30-plus year DEA agent. Good active point. in the field and yeah. now active in the county. Rocky, could you tell us your title with the county and what your job is now? Yeah, so I retired from DEA in 2021, and the County Office of Education created a position called the Ambassador of Alcohol and Other Drug Prevention. So for the last two and a half years, I've been working in drug prevention for the County Office of Ed. Directly. However, you've been working in not just uh, DEA interdiction and uh, burning down cocaine fields and meth labs and all that, but you were also doing education in schools uh When I was teaching here, we had you here 10 years ago or 12 years ago um, and have had you back multiple times. Um, Why did you get started with teen drug or young people, youth drug education outside? I mean, because it wasn't your job. You were a DEA agent like every other DEA agent, but you started doing this on your own, correct? Right. So two things happened almost simultaneously right around 2007, 2008. Um, that's when we discovered the Oxycontin epidemic in San Diego. Um, we knew it had hit back in the East Coast, but we really weren't aware of how bad it was in San Diego until all of a sudden, early 2008, we, we woke up to it in DEA San Diego. And uh, we ended up arresting a fairly large number of young adults, late teens, early 20s, who were selling Oxycontin. And I always would ask a lot of questions of my, my prisoners. I was really curious. You know, and I'd ask these young people, when did you start using? Why? Who made you think it was safe? And these are kids from our best schools, from Torrey, from Carmel Valley, from Rancho Bernardo, and from our best families. So this was not our traditional demographic for, for felony drug dealers. And all of these kids started crying. You know, on the way to jail, I'm asking them these questions. And they all started crying. And they all said, Rocky, if somebody would have warned me, maybe I wouldn't have started. If somebody told me how bad it was going to be, maybe I wouldn't have started. And at that time, I'd say, shut up, you know, because I didn't think anybody would listen. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I got invited to my daughter's fifth grade class here in San Diego. And I went to talk about my job. And when I was done, I said, any questions? Expecting a question about marijuana or alcohol or something. And a little boy goes, what's meth? And a little girl goes, what's heroin? And my mm-hmm. heart sank because I, I was in denial. I didn't want my fifth, my fifth grade daughter and her friends to be asking me about meth and heroin. And... I went to the school and I said, well, what are you doing for prevention education? And the school said nothing. And that's when it clicked that we actually 
were then and are still now essentially doing nothing organized to educate our kids about the risk of drug abuse. You're talking about at a national level, at a state level, at a county level, at any level. At any level, correct. And we also know even in healthcare, prevention's worth uh, uh, an ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure, whether you're talking about heart disease or uh, sleep problems. I mean, addressing and educating people early about how to eat, how to, how to rest, how to exercise, you're going to have way more... Uh, benefit at a fraction of the social cost. Right. In, in, in so many aspects of our society, we embrace the notion of prevention and, and education. But bizarrely, when it comes to drug abuse, um, we haven't mm -hmm. accepted it. We've rejected it, actually. I mean, D.A.R.E., a lot of people say, well, D.A.R.E. didn't work. Well, I, I don't know what that means, that it didn't work. I've certainly met a lot of adults who told me that it did work for them. But I'm not here to defend D.A.R.E., but when D.A.R.E. was pushed out of the schools, the sin is it wasn't replaced. Mm -hmm. So yeah. in, front of, in the face of these dramatic increases in suffering and statistics that are just horrifying, we haven't replaced D.A.R.E. with anything. So I feel very blessed to, to I started doing it on my own, and then people saw that I was reasonably effective at it, and now I'm able to do it as my work. But it's still a struggle to get into schools, and I still encounter a lot of resistance to it, and I don't quite understand why. And the criticism to D.A.R.E. of, of D.A.R.E. is, challenging because it's hard to prove that it worked, you know, unless you're just going to look at general numbers. But it's beyond just the numbers. Um, it's hard to know the student who it did have an impact on because they're not talking to you. They're off doing other things. Well, when it comes to drug abuse in a school or a community, it's very, very tricky to try and measure it because yeah. it, it changes all the time. And D.A.R.E. was designed by committee for a certain time and place. Mm -hmm. And the drug problem has continued to grow dramatically. And so, morph. And, and morph and change, right? So I think it's a little unfair, unreasonable to blame yeah. D.A.R.E. on its own for failing to meet, you know, the, the drug problem. But the, the bigger issue is why have we as a society essentially rejected the entire concept of prevention education? And I, I look back at the cigarette as, as a prime example. In 1960, roughly, the United States said, enough's enough. Mm -hmm. um, roughly half the teens in America smoked regularly. Mm -hmm. I think if you ask an average American in 1960, hey, we're going to try and teach kids, kids not to smoke, they would laugh. They would have said, that's ridiculous. This is what kids do. Mm -hmm. Well, we all know we, over the next 30 to 40 years, we took a lot of effort and money. And, and we got to a place in society where we almost eradicated cigarette smoking in our kids. And of course, the tobacco industry morphed into the vapes. Right. But, but I used cigarettes as an example. And yet somehow today, with today's drug problem, we're not willing to go back and look at that old model and make education a key component. And education was a primary component, but there was also getting the cigarette machines out of all the coffee shops, right? I mean, as a kid, you know, when we were teens, you could just go into a, a, a coffee shop and get cigarettes out of the machine, no one's carting you, no one's, and now they're back. So, th but that happened 20 years after the education, after the decision and the will and the, um, and the shared notion that we, want, we don't want people smoking. This really is harmful, it really is dangerous, and drugs for sure. Well, we created are. a culture, we changed the culture. Right. Right, we, we made our culture hostile to cigarettes, mm -hmm. right? And that's what enabled these, these steps. Um, I have the attitude that that's what we have to do and as the only way out of this nightmare with drugs is changing the culture. And it may take, unfortunately, 30 years to get us out of where we are today. But I have said every year I've been doing this, 17 years I've been teaching now, every year I keep saying, if we don't start fighting back hard today, we're going to be very sorry in five years. And, it's and I'm saying worse. the same thing today. Right. Well, right. and we were talking before this started that uh, for uh, roughly 30 years, 
drug overdose deaths in America waffled between 6,000 to 12,000, roughly around 10,000, year after year after year, it really didn't change. Automobile, drunk, auto, drunken automobile deaths rose, and then when they got to 30,000, Mothers Against Drunk Driving made that massive push in the early 80s, started a political movement to address senators and, and, and representatives and political people, changed the laws. State laws started changing even more. Today, they're much, much harsher than they were 30 years ago. Uh, but that preventative now, drug or alcohol-related deaths are have averaged between eight and 12,000 for the last 10, 20 years, where drug overdose deaths in America went from the 90s from 10 to 12 to 15 and then by the 2000s they started going up by five and i know when i was teaching and working with kids it was 35 40 45 when i finished it had jumped and during covid it had jumped by tens so now we're over a hundred thousand deaths more than two hundred and fifty thousand hospitalizations overdoses with that did not result in death as well as all the other millions of people that are and their families and everyone that knows them or works with them that are affected by the drug problem. Well, that last part you said is super important and is missing from the conversation. And we, we, we're overly focused, as horrible as they are, and we have to track overdose death. It's not the only Correct. problem. Right. And there is a massive population of Americans of the iceberg. where the quality of life's been destroyed yeah. and the quality of life of the family and, and the, the environment, the neighborhood's been destroyed. And you can't measure it. Uh, you can't count it like you can overdoses, but I, I, I'm glad you brought that up. But one of the lines I use in all of my presentations is when I joined the DEA, we were losing roughly 10,000 Americans a year in 1990. Yep. I thought that was a horrible number. Um, when I started teaching in 2007, I was shocked to see they declined to 37,000. And every year after that, I kept saying, okay, well, you know, we're going to react, we're going to change. And then I started saying, well, maybe when it reaches 100,000, we'll react. Well, a couple of years ago, we ticked over 100,000. Now it was 107, 108,000 a year. So what I tell my audiences is, it's not 10,000 a year anymore. We're almost 10,000 a month. Correct. And we're not yeah. reacting in any kind of a meaningful way. It, it, I mean, it is. I just got chills. It's stunning. Yeah. It's brutal. And 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 I ran a halfway house in the early 90s. I've been involved with recovery for 35 years, working with people. Um, and what I know is that drug addiction is. Progressive, chronic, and fatal. Progressive means it gets worse over time. Chronic means it doesn't go away. And fatal means it kills people. And it doesn't necessarily kill you. You may be you driving drunk. It may be you, you know, nodding out. and Or you, you know, it, it results in fatalities. You neglect your child. There's a lot of ways that it Correct. Happens, yeah. um, and you've got some heartbreaking stories about that. Rob? And Rocky, I know we're going to get into a, a lot of those details. But what, what you said is just really hitting me hard. And I'm curious how you have just managed that on a personal level. I mean, to, to this is your life's work, and you see the number is 10 times higher than when you started. Like, that seems like the worst Sisyphean task that's ever been given somebody. The rock keeps getting, has gotten 100 times bigger that you're pushing up the hill. Like, how are you managing that on a personal level? I'm doing okay right now. Yeah. Um, there have been times where it's really been hard. Um, the despair just kind of overwhelms me. For sure. Um, two years ago, I met a, a man whose daughter had recently perished from fentanyl. And he super motivated guy to get an education. And he invited me to attend a virtual session of parents, right? Mm -hmm. So I joined the Zoom call. This is two years ago. I joined the Zoom call. And as I began to listen to these current grieving parents talk about all the change that was going to happen, 
education in the schools and policy and law change and all these things, I, I was overwhelmed by melancholy and I had to leave the call. Because 15 years ago, when I was dealing with the generation of parents who lost their kids to OxyContin, they were having the same conversations. Yep. And, and, and that just, it crushed me. Yeah. That 15 years later, we're having this, these desperately sad people are having the same conversations and it's, it's not going to cause the change. And, you know, why it's not causing the change, that's a very complicated issue. Mm -hmm. um, my goal is simply to keep pushing, pushing the rock up the mountain. Um, and I was fighting to save the world, and I've stopped doing that. And now mm -hmm. if a school doesn't want me to come in, okay, I'll go where I'm wanted. You know, and that's mm -hmm. how I have to survive emotionally. And even if I feel sorry for the kids who aren't getting the message, I, I can't fight everybody all the time on this. Yeah. Well, while we've got this time, I just want to thank you. You're going to be here tonight at Tory. Speaking to some parents, so thank you for taking time to do that and being here beforehand because it's going to have an impact on our community because you know, as you've experienced, we've had this even recently here with, uh, with a Tory family. So well, the, I your appreciate the work you're doing. The adults don't know what they don't know. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So there'll be somebody in this audience tonight who is positively impacted by what we share. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When I was teaching at the uh, Continuation School, we had the Sheriff's Joint Task Force that was, the North County has a joint task force that was working with drug interdiction and drug uh, sales and what have you. And they came in and warned us. It was like 2002, uh, I think it was 2002 or 2003, but they were saying that because of the uh, Gulf War, and the change in the Taliban and the, and the loss of control over those poppy fields that the farmers were going to go back and start producing tons of heroin to be on the lookout for heroin that was going to come into the, into the county and up from Mexico. And, and, I, and, and there has never, I, I don't think I've ever had an in-service that had a more prophetic um, prediction because two, within two years, the, the heroin problem in the schools was huge it was and, and and terrifying right but it was actual heroin heroin i mean kids were going down to mexico but then right after that 2008 that's when the oxycontin the pills and the smoke in the 80s and um and it was 40 bucks a pill so then uh, ipods are getting swiped left and right mm -hmm. and all the you know just you couldn't leave anything anywhere because there were just so many kids that were addicted uh and then the actual heroin came back in 2010 and uh, and the pills have never left, but now the fentanyl, which has really been in 2015-ish, I'd say, and I, and you and 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 for anyone that's listening, I know everyone that starts our podcast has every intention of finishing our podcast because they love they just hearing about '70s toys and <laughs> '80s music, quotes from you, and then me sometimes um, correcting your words. Yeah. Who wouldn't stay? Yeah, who, who doesn't want to listen to that all the time? But if you're not going to stay, if you've got to go do the dishes or do the laundry, I want to tell you the thing that has stuck with me the longest, and it's been more than 12 years, you, you had an auditory. The gym was full, 2,500 kids. The whole school was in there, and kids were not on their phones. And you said something that I've never forgotten. You said, one pill, one time will kill you. And then you started talking about how these drug dealers in Mexico and in China or wherever and in America are, are, have the same presses. The DEA can't tell the difference. You started showing photos of trunkfuls of bag garbage bags, 50,000 pills. You know, these say uh, Oxycontin, these say Vicodin, these say Percocet, and they're all just fentanyl. Some have enough to kill 10 people. Some don't have anything. And then you showed how much is a fatal amount, which was like tiny, uh, the head of a pin. 
And you said the DEA can't tell the difference when these pills, and you're picking one up from somebody who said they got it from their grandmother's cabinet, and they're on a dance floor in a dark basement or wherever they're at, and uh, the the amount of brain power that those kids were, you could just see them thinking. And uh, so I think for any parent out there, you just have to understand there are kids that don't do drugs, but they're at a party or something happens and you know, unless they hear this message, unless they hear uh, how dangerous that one pill one time can put you in a coma, can put you, you know, can kill you. Um, yeah, brutal. I, I'm, I'm curious about that point, Don, and what you've seen, Rocky. So, like, as Don's saying, we know that um, fentanyl's being used in fake versions of other prescription drugs. Have you seen that in terms of, like, a, a kid who's um, – uh, thinking he's getting Ritalin for some reason, like we've seen kids use that to do better on tests. Stuff like that. Have you seen that kind of thing, or has it primarily been they think they're getting Oxy or something that's truly going to get them high? Well, I, I lived, I worked in, you know, the change. Um, our country has never been the same since OxyContin was licensed. Mm. But finally, and that was mid-90s, mid, mid 90s, 95, early 96. Finally, by I think it was 2010, 2011, the federal government mandated that Oxy, the Purdue Pharma, reformulate OxyContin. And they added some chemicals that made it harder to abuse. And I predicted that that would simply result in uh, abuse moving somewhere else, and it did. Almost overnight, we saw the abuse of OxyContin drop, and people began to abuse a drug called Roxycodone, mm -hmm. which is a 30 milligram instant release template. And um, sold it generically, it's, it's not near as expensive at a pharmacy. But it is pr it's produced by a, a drug company, the not like homemade. Malincrot makes Roxycodone, okay. and it was 30 milligram tablet, and just as abusable as OxyContin. So overnight, we saw abuse just leap over to Roxycodone, <clears throat> the blue pill with an M and a 30. But aren't okay. they crushing it and snorting it? So they can it? they could crush it and snort it. You can heat it up on a piece of foil. Um, some people would parachute it. They crush it up, put it on a piece of uh, tissue paper, and swallow it to get it in their stomach. You could you could heat it up and inject it. I mean, it's it's People can abuse it. It's like heroin. And essentially, mm -hmm. years ago when I was teaching in the public, some, this is 2008, uh, when I was in early stages of trying to work with the community, a guy walked into one of my presentations and said, Rocky, what about this heroin that comes in a blue pill? And I mocked him. I said, no, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Heroin doesn't come in a pill. Well, I was wrong. Uh -huh. He was talking about these the roxycodones. And so what happened is, around that same time, the cartels in Mexico saw how much money Americans were spending on these pills. And it was about 30 dollar milligrams, about $30 a pill. Yep. And they began to make copies out of heroin. Initially, it was heroin. And the copies were laughable. We would see some in DEA, and they were a joke. It's like somebody trying to fake an M&M in their kitchen. It's like, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's not going to fool anybody. Well, very quickly, the cartels figured out how to make the pills look exactly like the, the real ones. And they switched, tragically, to fentanyl. Because fentanyl is 50 times stronger than heroin, and it's much, much cheaper. So they began to flood America with these counterfeit pharmaceuticals. And the, the, the deaths really started climbing in 2015, 2016, yep. when people across America were <clears> buying <throat> what they thought was a legitimate pharmaceutical pill. And people are buying them on the internet. Well, yeah. Well, they were buying them from friends or on the internet or getting them from dealers. And, and there was a lot of drug dealing of legitimate pills at the time. Mm -hmm. That's my, my, work, my work. I was chasing people getting legitimate pills from pharmacies. But that changed very quickly. And so we had a lot of death. A lot of death from people who who truly thought they were using you know a pharmaceutical. Um, I've been out of the game for a couple of years. It's my belief that that's changed. That there's far fewer of the accidental deaths now. There's a lot more intentional use 
of the fentanyl pills. I mean, mm -hmm. drug, drug users are able to go on the internet and read what's out there too. Um, so I think the percentage of death that's accidental, truly accidental, is right. much, it exists, it's tragic, but it's much smaller. And it's my belief that a huge percentage of the death now well, is people choosing to use fentanyl knowingly. Right, but mm. when you say that, I mean, the death is accidental. The use is on purpose, but but it's not some misidentified anti-anxiety pill that was actually carfentanil or right. something. Right, and I think kids are probably, and I don't, I, can't, I don't have data to back this up, it's my belief that our youth population is the most vulnerable to the accidental death. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because right. the kids haven't done the research. They, somebody hands them what looks like a Xanax. They know their mom takes Xanax, whatever, and they, they don't understand. So that's my job in the schools is trying to explain to the kids. And one of the things I say in the schools is every single pill that your friend brings to a party that shows up at the beach or prom or you see for sale on Snapchat or Instagram is a fake made in Mexico from fentanyl, all of them. And uh, interestingly, three years ago, I was trying to get some data from DEA on what percentage of the pills that we seized that looked like they came from a pharmacy actually were. And some important people told me that they weren't tracking that data. which it's so I'm not, negligent. I... I I, I, I couldn't process it, and it, yeah. it's one of the reasons yeah. that led me to retire, that I couldn't mm -hmm. get wow. people to answer that question for me. But I called a friend of mine who worked at our DEA laboratory, just a, a journeyman chemist. That's what he does all day long, is analyze pills for, for mm -hmm. court. And I said, hey, you know, what are you seeing? And his answer blew me away. He goes, honestly, Rocky, I can't remember the last time I saw a pharmaceutical. So they so had, in his work, 100% of the pills. Which is really all the court stuff. and All counterfeit. And 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 the and there were and there are there are specials about the Sacklers and about Purdue, Purdue Pharma and that that showed those pill mills, especially in Florida. There were some states that had laws that were easier for. And you saw the massive amount of people in the parking lot, and yeah. that that was all a decade ago. That's not happening really anymore. Correct. And what you are seeing, and I, and again, I, I don't know if parents, if, if if you're listening, teachers, if you listen, some homework for you. Google. Uh, amount of fentanyl that uh, uh, the fatal amount of fentanyl and, and generally they show it on the head of a penny and it doesn't even cover Lincoln's nose I mean it's so small and then carfentanil is 10 times more powerful than fentanyl 100 times Hunt, okay so that's like and what you said that again stuck with me is you're supposed to use like a laser uh, a laser scale or micro scale to measure this stuff in an in a actual laboratory. But these guys are just throwing sackfuls of fentanyl into a bathtub with a big stick and putting it into the presses. Some have enough to kill 10 people. Some have nothing in there because it's such a small amount. Right. And these are idiot drug dealers making these things. It's not scientists. And, you know, one of the, the things I do in my talks is I show pictures of some of the, the, the drug laboratories that I saw in my career. And they're just disgusting. They're filthy, they're, they're yeah. dirty, they're nasty. And I show these laboratories and I ask the kids, would yeah. you eat in a restaurant that had a kitchen that looked like this? Right. And they'll go, no. I said, okay. But next time you're at the party and some kid shows up with a pill or the powder, the crystal, trying to make it all cool, that's where it came from. Right. You wouldn't eat food from there. How could you put this poisonous chemical in your body? And I see the kids, you know, their eyes and their reactions tell me that yep. nobody's messaged this to them before. Mm -hmm. Right. Basic and, stuff. And I'll tell you, um, one of the things that I said to kids for, and I have said for decades, drugs are fun, then they're fun with problems, then they're problems. and never goes backwards. It always goes frontwards. Kids generally start smoking weed, seventh or eighth grade summer. And what I saw was the progression went from weed to the pills at 15, 16, because the weed, you know, they were smoking so much weed, it just didn't really have an impact. Although it was also not this hydroponic stuff they've got today. But it went from 
weed 15, 16, pills 17, and then heroin 17, 18, 19. Well, yes. Historically, that I think was truer than it is now. The, the, one of the things I say is drugs today are stronger, cheaper, easier to get, and more socially acceptable. And by stronger, that's scary strong. Methamphetamine, you know, started here in San Diego in the 80s with the Hells Angels, but they're now producing a meth that's 99% pure. The stuff mm-hmm. I was seizing at the end of my DEA career was 99% pure meth. And, and it's, not, it's so inexpensive now. It's $1,000 a pound and not $12,000 a pound like it used to be because there's so much of it. So that super pure meth is now making it all the way down to the street level. Right. When historically, meth users never got 99% pure it meth. It was all stepped It was 20%, and- 30%, 40%, yeah. maybe. And, and fentanyl is like heroin times 50. And then the weed. I mean, a lot of kids don't even like smoking joints. So the first THC that they'll consume is some concentrated 95% THC. Right. So everything the kids are consuming today is at like the maximum yeah. potency you could possibly have. And I argue that the high you get from smoking an Oxycontin isn't very distinct from the high you get from smoking fentanyl. It just takes a lot less fentanyl to do that right. high. But the kids I was arresting in 2008, 2009 also said something very powerful to me. So I asked them, well, why did you use fentanyl or Oxycontin? And these are kids who would used everything, right? Their whole attitude was, I'm going to try whatever's out there. And they told me, Rocky, when I, this, this was, they all said this, when I smoked Oxy, I quote, found what I've been looking for. Mm-hmm. And that, had, that terrified me because that's still happening with fentanyl. So for some people, the, the, the high they get from fentanyl is so overwhelmingly positive and for alluring. them mm-hmm. that they know instantly there's nothing else in life that's going to equal it. And they are psychologically hooked from the first use. And what that, you know, for people that haven't done it, it feels like a warm blanket. It's like chicken soup, warm blanket, the most loving uh, for, for some people. Yeah, yeah. Some true. people, and you, we, the three of us here, you, one of, I might get itchy and not like it at all. Right. Uh, Rob might fall asleep and you might go, well, that's the best thing that ever happened to me. Right, right, right. 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 And that's what's so terrifying because nobody knows. We're all so unique and our brain chemistry is so unique. Nobody knows. Just like gambling. I mean, ga- it's gambling, the same place alcohol. In, yep. I had a boss, he was a lawyer, he used to drink one glass of wine and his whole face would would change flush, flush yep. yeah from one glass of wine we talked about that on the podcast recently don about um that line that uh social media is isn't like rat poison it's not bad for everybody, for everybody. That's it's right. like alcohol yeah uh, some people can manage it or don't like it at all and other people will get hooked right away right and i think the point you made uh, earlier rocky about the dosage i can say that's what we've seen here at tory so much is it's once we got edibles it, it changed the dynamic here on campus because it uh, the cookie, they are only supposed to have a quarter of it and take the whole thing. Now they're flat on their back in our office. We're calling 911 because they're teenagers. They don't know any better, and they take the whole thing. That And, and for Gen X parents like us, the dosage piece sort of blindsided, I think, a lot of parents. They never considered that it was so much more concentrated. Parents and adults and school leaders and political leaders still think too many that the drug problem facing the kids today is similar to what it was 20 years ago. Right, exactly. Or or even, I mean, people talk about smoking weed like it's the 60s and Crosby, Stills, and Nash and hippies. Yes, but that's that's one of the obstacles is many Mm -hmm. people who could open doors for me aren't really interested because they have these very outdated understandings, right? So that's one of the challenges in front of me. But... I, I use this example. Uh, when my kids, unfortunately as teenagers, dabble with alcohol and had some alcohol you know, incidents, the, one of the very first questions I asked, and I think any parent would ask, is, well, what were they drinking? 
because we understand it's, it's a different level of toxicity based on you're drinking a wine right. cooler or you're doing tequila shots, right? So one of the first questions that most adults would ask in an alcohol incident is, well, what were they drinking? With marijuana, most parents don't understand it's not the 4% THC right. natural plant that my middle school friend smoked, that Bob Marley smoked. It's 25 to 30% THC in a joint today, which is six or seven times as much THC. Or if it's edible, it could be 90%. Yeah. But we're, the marijuana industry just wants us to call it all marijuana. Mm -hmm. And we need to give the different potencies different names, like we've done with alcohol. Mm -hmm. and, and unfortunately, I think a lot of people don't ask that question. We had uh, um, one of the directors of the teenage, it was the adolescent uh, drug researcher for the Rand Corporation. I mean, the, the fact that a, a Tory student had this parent who was phenomenal, she came and spoke, and the discomfort in the room when she's just laying out the truth, I mean, nailing like when kids start, what they, how they do it. But what she talked about the most was the impact on the adolescent brain that is still developing, you know, from 13 to 24, and that this wiring is getting uh, connected in a dope smoke fog. Right, and that you you those connections get established, and they never go back. Well, you're talking short-term memory, long-term memory, um, the ability to focus. I mean, it just went on and on. Um, and this was research based. The Rand Corporation is not political. It's just like what are the facts? Um, and she was very factual and logical. So, uh, I, I think that I remember a long time ago there was a USA Today article that said 20% of kids that start smoking weed. Uh, smoke with their parents. And I don't know that that statistic is still true. I do know that I, I was looking up recent statistics last week that one in three parents smoke marijuana uh, um, socially or what, you know, like a glass of wine or what have you. So roughly 30%, one in three. I mean, that, and there were multiple different um, studies, studies that, yeah. that showed that. So, well, that logic would follow because it's, it would not be surprising if you've normalized it in your house. So then you're going to say, well, I might as well show them how to do this and handle it responsibly. Right. So I think that, that, that logic definitely follows. And it's legal in California. Yeah. And now you can't drug test for it in, in, in the workplace, right? That was just passed this year. Yeah. Um, but I've also seen on the different uh, CDC and what have you that one of the primary ways to help kids not get involved in drugs is to have an attitude that this is not something we want in the house. Of course it is. And, and sending clear messaging. And a lot of parents who like weed, they're not going to send that message, right? They're just going to assume that the kids are going to do it. I think a lot of people assume that everybody does it. I still tell people I never smoked weed and they look at me like I'm lying. Right. I just, you know, I made, the, I almost did. My friends pushed me to when I was young and I just, I thought about it and I made a decision at 11 or 12. I knew weed, weed wasn't going to kill me, but I also figured out that it was never going to help me. Yeah. So that was my logic. Like, why am I ever going to use something that I might like? Right. Because my friend sure liked it. Why am I going to start using this if I know it's not going to help me? Uh, but it's, it's this, we have to change the societal norms, and it's going to be hard. You know, I go to some high schools in San Diego, and, and I start talking about weed, and some kid will say, why are you talking about weed? It's not a drug. And they're not joking. Right, right. That's their belief, because we allow the marijuana industry to tell them all day, every day, that it's, it's not, in fact, not a drug. And uh, one of the, the suggestions I have for anybody listening, if you're, if you're doubting this or you're curious about this, simply do the Google search teen brain damage marijuana, teen brain damage yeah. marijuana. And you will find, I just did it recently, you'll find hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles from around the world yeah. documenting how devastating it is to youth development. And I'm not going to say that it, it's, it's the devil weed. But I do recommend to kids that, you know, and families that you pay attention to the youth damage it's causing. Right. 
And uh, if an adult wants to smoke weed, well, I'm not going to argue that that's any better or worse than alcohol. But I'm focused on our kids who are using it younger and younger now. And many school districts now are having me come in and give my full presentation to fifth graders. Wow. Which is sad. I'm happy about it because that's the audience we need to reach. But that's sad that schools are realizing that we have to get this message down to that young. And that's a 10 or 11-year-old. Yes. And how do you modify or do you modify it? I, I, I modify it very slightly. And my tone changes and, I, you know, my, my presentation changes. Right. But the power of the imagery and all that is almost the same. There's a couple images I take, uh, you know, a few of the shocking images I pull out. But it's, it's 95% the same. And they're giving me 90 minutes. So it's funny. I tell some elementary educators that I'm going to do a 90-minute drug assembly with fifth graders. And they, they, <laughs> they're like, good luck. <laughs> good luck, right? And I don't say hold my beer. Are you beer. bringing puppets? I don't say hold my beer, but I'm like, you know, watch me. And it, I did it yesterday in Lemon Grove. In 90 minutes, the kids are sitting on the floor in the, in the little AV, uh, media room. And at the end, they're cheering. They're screaming, I choose my future. Now, could parents call you? I mean, if parents say, I want this in my school, I want my principal to get in contact with you, what do they do? Do they go to the San San SDCOE website? Well, uh, yeah, the easiest thing to do would be go to my website, which is www.rockyheron.com. Um, I have my contact information there, and, and just reach out. And and and, I'll, and if they reached out to you, could you reach out to the school and talk to the principal? I No, so that's on them. Right. They I'll, I'll give the them principal. tips. I'll suggest what they can say. But yeah, I can't, you know, I, I, I don't have the energy to fight all that. So I tell people, this is what I recommend. This is what I recommend you say. Here's, here's a bunch of resources. Right. Um, here's the website for the County Office of Ed, which is wonderful. The, the acceptance of, my, of me and my work changed dramatically when, once I was employed Door by the County opener. Office of Ed. Yeah. yeah. Schools that were reluctant to bring me in because I was a DA guy and their fear, the administrators fear that parents might question that. Um, that's not the problem anymore because now I'm the county office guy and there's a, a blue ribbon stamp on, on my work, which I'm very proud of. And I, I, I wanted to point out that I'm very grateful to the county office and to Dr. Gotthold for hiring me because as far as I know, my position is unique in the country. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I'm not aware of anybody else in, nationwide who's doing school-based drug prevention as intensely as I am from within a school district. All right, I'm going to do it. I, I threatened to do it and I'm going to do it. We're going to use our bully pulpit. Stop yeah, with the paper. Yeah, don't snap the paper. <laughs> We've talked about this. You've I was, got to come to rehearsal. We've talked about this, Don. I was at the gym doing my reps. <laughs> uh, yesterday, San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria spoke in Washington, D.C. on the opioid, opioid epidemic to on a three-day U.S. Conference of Mayors, the winter meeting, he delivered more remarks uh, to a panel discussion entitled Opioid Epidemic Evidence-Informed Mayoral Strategies, sharing his actions to attempt to combat the proliferation of opioid in San Diego. Okay. What That's a lot could, of words. What could Mayor Todd Gloria do with Rocky Heron and the DEA and education and prevention that would be simple wins? Well... My position is that the drug problem has three components, three legs to the stool. I was a law enforcement guy. I believe in that. Right. I truly believe in it. I would put people away a lot longer than we do uh, for selling this poison. Uh, the other leg would be you know, treatment and recovery. And fortunately, we're putting a lot more resources. But with these powerful drugs today, that's a very, very complicated problem once people have gone down the road of abuse. Can we stop for one second? Because yeah. I've got it. I've been working with and visiting a friend of mine who's five weeks sober off of meth. 
still having hallucinations, wow. hasn't touched drugs in five weeks, and is still hearing things, seeing things, now on antipsychotic medication. And the doctor said, we don't know whether your brain's going to come back. And I'm going to, I'm going to speculate that that's that 99% pure meth. Yep. That he just, mm -hmm. you know, it, the level of meth he was consuming, and it's so inexpensive that there's, the cost is not a factor anymore. Yep. But he uh, goes psychotic in, on his own within 48 hours or 72 right. but hours. But what I was saying about the potent, the drugs are stronger, it's scary. Yes. Nobody could afford or acquire the meth that your friend was taking to yep. discover that brain damage that happened from it. And so, I, you know, again, to the listeners, it is scary powerful and scary dangerous and scary permanent in some situations. So, but I don't want to, you got two legs, law enforcement, recovery. Right, and that's where the conversation stops. And if, every time I read a proclamation of speech or some op-ed from somewhere, I'm all excited, and they don't even mention prevention education. It's not even in the conversation. And I don't understand, because like going back to the cigarettes, education was the prime component when we started to tackle the cigarette, youth cigarette smoking. But today with the youth drug problem, Maybe it's the hangover from the D.A.R.E. issue. I don't know how to explain it. But any politician, Mayor Gloria, has numerous people in his community. I'm one of them. There's a number of people I work with who work for the U.S. Attorney's Office or the DEA or the District Attorney's Office or Health and Human Services. These Parole different and probation. National Guard is doing education. There are a lot of people in the community who will deliver this information into schools at no cost. So it would cost the mayor or any politician zero dollars to call us into a room and say, how do I get you into the schools in my city? And then leverage that and go publicly to the schools and say, I am calling on you. To you welcome know, We're, we're fighting, we're gonna fight these other issues, we're gonna fight the homeless problem, we're gonna fight the drug abuse, but I need you to step up and, and give access to you know, the drug education side. We have to start working on that. And, and the fact that they don't baffles me because it literally is no cost. No cost, no time, no effort. Just stand up and say, look, you know, we're missing the boat here. I know a lot of people think drug education doesn't work, but we owe it to our kids to warn them. An example I'll give you. Tragically, two years ago, we lost 13 kids to overdose under 18 years old in San Diego. Unbelievable. 13 deaths of kids under 18 years old. Last year, it was only six. So, you know, there's been some progress there. But if we had, this is a harsh example, but if we had some human killer that once a month was stalking a school right. child in yeah. San Diego. Mm -hmm. And we had some notion what that guy drove and what he generally looked like. I think every kid in San Diego tomorrow would know that information. We would sit down and we would warn our kids. Look if you see the this, the you know, the, yeah, the, yeah, the tall, bald guy with glasses, you know, <laughs> you look out for that guy. Fentanyl, which is waiting for all of our kids at every party they go to, every time they go to the beach, every bonfire, every prom, Every time they go to a friend's house, they're at risk of somebody bringing a handful of something that has fentanyl in it. We're not giving our kids the same warning. Yep. And so is that our fault or the kid's fault that they don't know how dangerous this stuff is? Um, Great question. No, that, I mean, that is because it is our fault. I mean, I, I'll answer that. I don't think it's necessarily the kid's fault. That is part of our responsibility as parents. My kids have had the, the benefit of living with an administrator their whole life, so they're scared out of their minds uh, by all the stories <laughs> I've, uh, I've heard and shared. I do think it's a parent's responsibility, and I, and I want to speak a little bit to um, what you're talking about, like the, the, the easy part of getting into the schools, because Don and I did an episode at the end of last year called Fix Everything Everywhere All at Once. And it was one of the challenges on, on school campuses. Like when I had, uh, we're, we have this event tonight because a group of parents came to speak to me last summer. 
So this is how long it's taken us to even get there. Yeah. And they, they asked that same question, like, why aren't you doing this like all the time? Why are we doing it? And I said, here's why. Because I've got a state law that requires me to train kids and parents on suicide prevention. I've got, um, we've got parents all over us about college acceptance and grade challenges. Like, so all of these things are kind of falling on us. We've got traffic fatalities, everything. So trying to, it sounds terrible. E-bikes. Right, e-bikes. Yeah, that's why aren't you training the kids how to ride e-bikes? I'm like, when did that become my responsibility? I didn't buy them the e-bike and I didn't invent the e-bike. <laughs> you gave it to them and now I got to teach them how to ride it? That's not happening. Um, so it became this like, uh, almost like a bum rush on the schools of mm-hmm. get everything in there. And because I look back when we had you here years ago and it seemed easier then. And since the pandemic, it's been harder to catch up with all those things. So I think we're getting closer to it. Like tonight's a parent event. And I just talked to you about being here next year mm-hmm. uh, to talk to the kids uh, uh, um, a couple of times. So I think we're getting back there. But I, I, to answer that question, why it's been difficult is to think schools are being asked to do a tremendous amount right now. And we're having trouble keeping well, I, up. I got a master's in education. I finished in 2015. And one of the things that shocked I was the only non-teacher in my program. Right. And one of the things that shocked me was how many things schools were being asked to solve. Yeah. And I, was, I really looked at that. And part of it, unfortunately, is the fault of the school systems, mm-hmm. which keeps saying, well, give us more funding and we will uh-huh, address these problems. Instead of schools saying, <laughs> yeah. sorry, we can't do that. Right. Schools seemed, many schools or school systems seem to say, oh, yeah, yeah, just give us more funding and we'll take care of that. Uh, but, but but it's also a, an issue like with child trafficking. Who who mm-hmm. sees children the most? We do, and who's going to notice? Or child abuse, the, yeah. the, the bruises, the the, the yeah. stories. Well, and, and uh, I have worked closely with schools for seventeen years, right? In this capacity, right. right? I don't want your job. I mean, I've learned how challenging. You have an endless list of have tos and requirements, right? So I'll I'll do a staff training or a superintendent briefing, and everyone's like, oh my god, we have to do something when they leave the meeting. Right. Well, they drive back to their office and they open, they've got 20 crisis emails mm-hmm. and enraged parents and, you know, kids getting arrested or whatever. So the, the, the priority of the drug thing just perpetually falls off the bottom. Exactly now, right. I'll, I'll get a lot of schools, because like, I want 60 minutes, you know, minimum with the kids. A lot of schools are giving me 90 now. But um, I've had some schools or districts tell me, well, you know, we really can't change our bell schedule. And sometimes when I'm tired or not so patient, I, I look at him and say, you know, if you have a student overdose tonight, you'll be changing your bell schedule tomorrow. And that's, you know. Harsh. But it's true. harsh, but it's true. And the, the level of the drug threat is such that I don't care, right? And obviously I have my myopic position. This is where I am. Sure. But what I'm frustrated about is, not to call it Mayor Gloria, but I'm frustrated using it as an example. The, the people in power of leadership who have a voice aren't stepping up and saying, I know, I know it's hard for you. We're going to try and get you some extra funding. I'm going to lean on the legislature to man, you know, mandate some funding for you. I'm not hearing those conversations. I, I'm sure somebody in Sacramento is pushing for some sort of mandated drug prevention. But yeah. how bad does the problem have to get, guys? Right. Well, the, the, I, you reminded me of when, we were, when I was organizing the Yellow Ribbon Suicide Prevention and Mental Health Programs, and I called, and, and because I had a background in public relations with the military, I have, I'm happy to work with the news, and whether it's print or film or TV, and I would call up these stations and tell them you know, that we're having these programs, and not one TV station would come to cover it. They covered the, the drunk driving, and the, there was a little bit more drama, but... 
And I would say to them, if we have, when we've had kids who have died by suicide, you are parked out there trying to interview kids, trying to, you know, stick their camera in their faces or leave in the parking lot. But I, here I am inviting you in to see what the kind of education we're giving them to help them not do this. And you're not interested. If we had a kid ready to jump off a building, God forbid, you'd be way out there with everybody else in the parking lot. And I think it's sick. I think it's wrong. And, and, and the focus is wrong. And I think that the same way with the state legislature, that those Mothers Against Drunk Driving were a force. They were, they were just enough is enough. And, and really, uh, and we've seen it with the Sandy Hook promise and a lot of the gun violence parents have organized and are pushing politically. Um, and, and, and yet we haven't seen an organization like, or Mother's Demand is another political organization about gun violence. But we have, you know, I don't know of a, drug overdose parent organization and and i'm sure that there must be some group but it's more for support and grieving than it is for political change and action there are some song for charlie is one up in la that based in la that i that i work with and support there are some um i, I think you know i want to go here uh, i i question how society is not reacting right right mm -hmm. and unfortunately i think we have a a, a a stigma we have a massive stigma in our society against drug users and on some level too many of us, when we hear about an overdose, cast blame on, on the overdose victim. Well, you know, they chose to use it. And I have to think, and sadly, I, I, absent any other explanation, for me, that, that is where I'm going on why we're not reacting, why it could be 110,000 deaths a year and we're not seeing these conversations about the political change. Is I, it partly, to, uh, we talk about a lot about different generations and stuff, and, you know, many parents have an image of a drug user. And it's rarely the accurate image. I mean, I had a um, you know family member uh, who was a uh, hardcore cocaine addict for ten years. You would not have known right. it by any stretch of the imagination. We have this image of the strung out heroin addict, Sid Vicious. That's a that's a drug well, user. Well, let me. And yeah, we thought. When did you when did you go for rehab? Uh, well, I didn't go to rehab, but I stopped drinking in '89. Okay, or '88. So I, I went to college with Don. Right, yeah. we're classmates at so a yeah. small school. And Don, he, knew, Don, he knew I had a problem. Don, Don's a large man with a large personality. I, I'm a large man with a, at the time, not got a big personality. I was small. I was kind of a quiet guy. But um, Don has a big personality. Don, Don, Why don't you let it out on the podcast? No, but I, but Don is a good kid. Don was an extremely high functioning yeah. student at a very very elite, you know, high functioning school. Yeah. Are and you frosting my cake? No, I'm not. But I'm just saying that I had I had no idea. I had no idea until I met Don years later. Yeah. You know, we weren't actually close friends in, in college. We became right. friends later. But I had no idea that Don had, was going through what he went through. And just a perfect example. that, mm -hmm. and, and not everybody could function like Don did, right? right? Some people could drink as much as well, Don did and, and, and stop functioning. And I did crash and burn and I didn't graduate. You know, in a year before I didn't graduate, <laughs> the, uh, Professor Yale, the department chairman, told me after an office visit, he said, Don, you know, you're not going to charm a major out of the department. You're actually going to have to do the work. <laughs> and I was offended. <laughs> what do you mean I can't smooth it? Wow. Oh, I, I was schmoozing hard. But I, I, I want to get back to what you were saying about the, the, the blame in the victim. And because, you know, over 30 years, but particularly in the last 25, 23, uh, I've lost 25 to maybe even 30 friends now and students, former students. Uh, and these aren't like kids that I heard about in the school. I mean, these are kids that I've had, you know, conversations like this, worked with, tried to help um, some that had gotten sober, 
Uh, one that was sober for eight years got pills off the internet, and it was that carfentanil wave in 2015 that came through, and, and the cops knew you know, immediately what had happened. And it's brutal. If I, going into the church with the table, with the lacrosse stick and the skateboard and the baseball mitt and the pictures, and it's like the same, uh, diff, you know, different versions of that same pain, that same gone too soon, and uh, it's brutal. And these kids are amazing. Yeah. They're and just amazing kids that and, have talented and have futures and potential. Yeah, and... and uh, so I was recently, I, last month, I got a chance to present to the California School Board Association as part of a group from San Diego County wow. Office, a very high-level conference for, for schools in San, for San Francisco. And of the many thousands of people at that conference, I, I'm likely the only one who took it upon myself to walk the tenderloin in San Francisco for a couple hours. Oh, wow. So at 6 in the morning, I walked out of my hotel, and I walked the tenderloin for two hours. And I remained traumatized by that. And I saw, I, I was expecting to see the poor, suffering people laying in the gutters, which, you know, it was hard to see. But stepping over the feces and urine to get there and seeing the businesses with power washers at six in the morning blowing off the feces and urine from their sidewalks and trying not to breathe that cloud of aerosol filth and excrement, and then walking past this magnificent city hall in San Francisco. Yep. And I, I still can't reconcile. I still can't reconcile seeing that city hall and three blocks up, seeing people dying in the gutters. And as I finally was walking away, I passed two white guys who were sitting down, homeless guys sitting there on the curb, and they both lit up fentanyl right as I walked by. I could hear it crackling on the foil. So I stopped and said, guys, can I talk to you? And they said, yeah. <laughs> so I, I sat down next to them, and I spent over an hour talking to these guys. And I have a theory that the majority of our current homeless population, they self-identify drug abuse as number one or number two oh, reason yeah. that they're on the street. They self-identify that. My theory is that some significant majority of them started substance abusing to self-medicate in middle or high school. Yep. Didn't get on anybody's radar, but they put themselves on a, a path of relationship destruction and life destruction that eventually leads them to be living on the streets. So I, as I talked to these two guys, one was in his 40s, one was in his 20s, I asked them, a survey of two, I said, guys, when did you start? The older guy, he, his parents died when he was two, adopted by his grandfather, saw his grandfather murdered at 11. And he started using drugs to self-medicate his grief. The younger guy was prescribed Ritalin uh, for his ADD, discovered that you could abuse it, and was off to the races. So my survey of two was 100% youth corroborating what I'm thinking, right? But I can't find that data. Like if I look at the reports on the homeless and the surveys and the study, nobody's publishing the data on when they started. Are they even mm -hmm. asking the question? I, I, well, yeah. this is something else Mayor Gloria could help me with because I know homeless is a big problem. I would love for the city of San Diego to meet with me. And let's talk about that. When did the homeless put themselves on that path? Again, because wouldn't the solution be to try to prevent future homeless right. rather than try and save the people that have put themselves out on the streets? Mm -hmm. Please be sure to check out part two of our conversation with Rocky in two weeks. That's all for today's episode. If you found our conversation thought-provoking and want to know more, you can find resources and guest photos on Instagram at Best for Kids Podcast. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email us at bestforkidspodcast at gmail.com. And to help us keep this conversation going, please rate and subscribe in your podcast app of choice. But more importantly, we hope you stay curious and keep asking, what's, what's best, best for kids? kids?